Wow. Lainey, isn't that the song you did at children's camp? Um, several months ago, right after I received the word that I had prostate cancer, I went to children's camp and, uh, and Lainey sang that song. The reason I had to ask her is I cried so much. I was there with the kids and I was trying to hide it. You ever had to do that? You trying to suck it up? You know what I'm talking about? And I'm standing back there in the back going, you know. And so, so much emotion then and now that uh, I had to make sure that that was, are all the same words I heard then. So meaningful to know that God in Christ by the Holy Spirit will never leave us or forsake us. That, that's just great! So, rejoice, rejoice. Our Savior lives and lives in us. Uh, what do your words sound like when you are speaking out of distress? What do your words sound like personally? Think back. When people listen to you, they're standing on the outside. And you're in distress and you begin to, um, to kind of pour out a lot of what's inside. And it's kind of like uh, uh, something like a, a, a grape or an orange or a lemon or a lime. Something being squeezed and what's inside begins to come out. What do you, what do you sound like when you are in a difficult situation? It is often adversity that actually begins to reveal what's going on on the inside. When we don't have adversity, we can put up a pretty good front. We can. I don't know about you, but I'm better at pretending when things are easy. Are you? Are you better at pretending when stuff's pretty cool? I'm better at it. But when stuff's not cool, I'm not as good at pretending. And the pretense seems to go away and you get squeezed and what's actually inside begins to kind of leak out. And Jesus said it this way, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Why is that relevant? Well, Paul's being squeezed. He's in a Roman jail, not like our modern air-conditioned, climate-controlled. And I'm not saying I think jail's a great place. So, (laughs) if you spend a little time there, and you're looking at me now going, Bart, you're an idiot for how you're describing it. I just want to say, it's even worse. It's even worse. If you didn't have someone bringing you clothing, and have someone bringing you help and aid, you simply were going to do without. You see that in 2 Timothy as Paul asks for a cloak that he left in Troas because he's cold and he needs it. And so he sends a letter asking for that coat. And so uh, he's in a Roman jail and he's being squeezed. But what is so incredible about the Philippian letter, a letter from prison, a letter from jail, is that it is not dripping with anger or anguish. It's not dripping uh, with... um, Bitterness or malice or wrath. It's dripping 
with joy. It's full of joy. And it seems like the more difficult the situation that Paul's in, the greater the obviousness that his joy is totally unrelated to his situation. When he's in prison in Philippi, in the book of Acts, and he's been beaten, and he's in stocks, and he's in the inner chamber, he's singing and praising and praying to God. Adversity does not create the contents of our character. It reveals it. It is something squeezing our hearts in such a way that they overflow out of our mouths. And so Paul's letter to the Philippians is joy overflowing in a sense out of his mouth. It is words written by hand, but they're flowing out of his mouth. They're coming out of his heart. And so when you look at what Paul's doing in the book of Philippians, you're seeing a man in adversity having a joy that is not tied to his situation. Our Twitter feeds and our Facebook posts and our interactions in private, hidden conversations are always that we let the squeezing of our heart overflow out our mouths. Paul is here posting a letter through the only social media he has, handwritten, delivered to Philippi, to say, you know what, guys and gals? My situation is not the place I get my joy from. I have a joy that is abiding, that transcends and goes down beneath. It rises above and goes down under all of the situations I find myself in. Because His joy is Jesus' joy. In Philippians, what Paul is living out is... John 15, when Jesus said, I have told you these things, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Well, when your joy is made full and you get squeezed, it's going to overflow out of your mouth, just like Paul's words did. And we saw last week the joy that Paul had in being a servant of God. This week, joy in the saints of God. Now, I hope you're wise enough being close enough to New Orleans, and being Louisianans for the most part, that you know we're not talking about the New Orleans saints here. If you have chosen your joy there, good luck. I'm not an anti-saints guy. I just learned a long time ago, if you start finding your joy in sports, it's just going to go up and down all the time. It's, it's a pretty rough roller coaster ride. We learned over the last couple of weeks three things about Christian joy. First, it's related to faith. In first uh, in Philippians one twenty five, Paul said that he hopes to stay with the congregation in order that their joy in the faith may grow. And in Romans ten uh, fifteen thirteen, excuse me, uh, the apostle talks about our joy which comes to us in 
believing. So joy is tied to what we believe in, what we trust in. If you are trusting in your circumstance to give you joy, you will be constantly finding yourselves vomiting out of your mouth the disappointment in your surroundings. It'll come out of your mouth the disappointment in your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, your sporting teams, your whatever it is that you're placing your faith in for your joy. If it's situational, as the situation changes, you'll find that what is promoted from your mouth is joylessness. And that in the moments of joy that you do have, you will be a proponent of false joy givers. Trying to get other people to trust in the things that you're trusting in, in the circumstance, and then you'll be leading them to be disappointed later. Christian joy is related to what you put your trust in. Paul put his trust in Jesus, so his joy was in Jesus. He put his faith in God, so his joy was in God. He put his faith in the gospel, so his joy was in the gospel. And then all of the things that come out from that. And so Christian joy is related to faith. It's also related to fruit. Christian joy is a byproduct, not of your want to or your will to. I'm not suggesting that you try to make some joy in your life through your religion. I'm not suggesting that at all. In fact, if you have picked up from me that I think you need to go and make yourself joyful, you've read me wrong. There is only true source of joy, one true source, the true source of joy, and that is Jesus. That's why he says in John 15, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit and my joy will be in you. In other words, your joy comes from abiding in Jesus. It is a product, a produce of a relationship with God by faith, in Jesus Christ, where your sins are forgiven and your joy is eternal in Christ. It is not something you drum up. You can fight for your joy. You can contend for your joy. You can seek your joy. All in Jesus. Those are good. But you cannot produce your joy. It comes from abiding. In fact, your joy is the direct result of your relationship and satisfaction with Jesus. People whose mouths spout dissatisfaction are not saying it's just the situation that's dissatisfying me. There's something bigger. I'm not satisfied with God. And so the Apostle Paul shows a satisfaction in God so deep that prison cannot squeeze it out of him. Beatings cannot squeeze it out of him so that he becomes empty of it. No. Prisons and beatings squeeze it forth from him so that his joy is experienced by other people. When Paul starts describing his prison experience in verses 14 and following, he starts talking about how his Relationship with Jesus is now known through the entire cadre of guards at the prison. Where there's conversations about this one guy who has such a faith in this one person that they've not been able to bring him to joylessness. 
And it's spreading through the prison because of Paul's joy in Jesus. So he's writing this letter and it's fruit of a relationship. Third, we learned also that it's related to the future. Paul knew that his sufferings were temporal. In fact, he says, I do not think that the sufferings of this present world are worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And he talks about this light, momentary affliction producing in us and for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It's in the future. Our permanent source of joy is abiding in us, but it is coming at us at the speed of life. At the end of our days, when we depart and we have left this body, we will be in the presence of joy. And we will know it in its fullest. So Paul now is going to turn his joy to his joy in the church, his joy in the saints. He's going to show how, because of his joy in Jesus, he has joy in Jesus' people. Now, this is one of the most attractive things in the church. When the church has joy in each other and loves each other. When the church has this relationship with each other that is a true fellowship in Christ, a true love that Wendy was describing earlier, when that is there, it's very attractive. In fact, in the old days, during the Roman Empire, after Paul's prison ministries and all that went on with the gospel spreading through Rome, one of the comments that would be later said by a Roman writer who's not a believer, he would say, oh, how they love each other. Let that be the thing that people know us for. That we have such joy in Christ that we love and rejoice in each other. Joy is found first in this saint relationship, in the price paid for the saints. I want you to think of collections that you've ever gone to see. Maybe you've been to the Smithsonian. Maybe you've been to one of the sports memorabilia places. Maybe you've been to one of the collections of cars or antiques or jewelry. And you go to one of those events and you go to one of those collections and you see all of these things. And one of the things everybody starts to talk about is... I wonder what that cost. I wonder what's that worth. I wonder how much this whole investment is. We go to a gun collection and we say, oh, look at that special thing. I wonder what's that worth. We go to a car collection, they have this rare car. The Sultan of Brunei has the largest car collection in the world. He has somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 rare cars. The worth of it is untold. He won't even reveal how many he has, but everyone who tours is in awe of the fact that there is so much worth in all of these cars that he has stored in warehouse after warehouse after warehouse, shown in incredible places. And as people walk through, they say, that one's worth this much. He actually has one car worth $14 million, one car in his collection. And so... As people look at it, they say, wow, how much something is worth is tied to how much somebody will pay for it. You can say something's worth something, but if nobody will give that for it, it's really not worth that. Look around for a minute. Crane your neck. Look around here in the church. Look, go ahead. Stop looking at me. Look around. Go ahead. Turn your head. Look around. Look at everybody you can see. All right. You're at Jesus' collection. This is His collection. 
Do you know what He paid for this? Think it through. Do you know what He paid to get this collection here? The Bible says you were not redeemed with jewels and gold, perishable things from your old way of life. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What did God pay to get this collection here? Look around. What did He pay? The life of His Son. Every born-again believer who is here is a part of God's glorious vast collection to His glory for the good of His people and the glory of His Son. And Paul would look around at the church and he'd say, Jesus paid for him and her. Jesus paid for them, paid for those. And he would rejoice that these were the saints purchased by the blood of the Lamb. That these were precious to God. That they mattered to Him. That God had made a personal investment to gain His possession of their soul. So much so that the Apostle Paul would say, your conduct should be related to that. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so when you look around, sometimes because people have upset us or hurt us, sometimes because they've disappointed us or caused some trouble to us, we will start devaluing what God has valued beyond your comprehension. And I believe that's offensive to God when we devalue each other through gossip, through meanness, through disrespect, through avoidance or ignoring. Every saint of God is purchased with the blood of the Lamb and is valuable to God in a way that we can't comprehend. And so, this price paid for them. Paul contemplated, he said, every remembrance. Think about that. Every remembrance. I thank my God in every remembrance of you. Look around and think about what God spent for us. Look around and think about God's investment here. Look around and and understand we're a part of a collection that God says we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way, but we are not struck down. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. There is this work of Jesus in all the saints who are here. Every redeemed person in every congregation meeting all over this globe. And God is infinitely interested in their well-being and invested in their well-being. And so, we need to stop and be impressed that the person you like least in this church has a value to God that you cannot comprehend. And one of these days, that person's going to be a part of Jesus' bride. 
And I learned a long time ago, you never talk about a big guy's bride. Y'all following me? I married Matt and Lindy Keller. I love those kids. I wish they were still here. They're serving in Texas. Matt's a big boy. I remember the first time I ever hugged him, I hit him right in the middle of his chest. He's a big old guy. Could you imagine me down, talking down to or about Lindy in front of Matt? You know, I'm not super smart, but I'm smart enough not to do that. What's happening when you're talking down about Jesus' bride? Paul took joy even in the fact that we're not where we ought to be. We're going to flesh that out. Second, number two, joy is found in praising God for the saints. I believe this is a spiritual discipline that will help you get over the fact that people bug you in church. When you will begin with every person that bugs you, putting them at the top of your prayer list and getting busy praying for them. Paul says, what am I doing? I thank my God, not in some of my remembrance of you, but what? All. He had reason not to be real happy with the jailer because the jailer's the one that put him in the stocks and put him inside. But the jailer got saved and was part of the church. And when Paul thought about the jailer, what did Paul do? He gave thanks. He gave thanks. And so what Paul is doing here is he's giving us a model for how to fight for joy, how to seek joy in the right things. He has joy in knowing the price paid for the saints. God purchased this with His blood. We ought to be glorifying God with our body. But He's praising God for the saints. And He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When is the last time you thanked God for the person who bugs you? Come on. Do it. Paul did it. You don't think some of these folks bugged Paul? You have to read the rest of his letters. You have to read about the people who are fighting with each other in the church. And he says, I urge you to tell these folks to get along. You think that's bugging him? Absolutely. But what does he do? He praises God for them. And he prays for them. That's where we move into. Number three is really a reflection of number two. Praying to God for the saints. Not just praising Him, but praying. Praying to God for the saints. Notice what Paul prays for them. Wendy pointed this out really well. Notice in verse 4 it says, I am always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for all of you. And then he says, here's what I pray. Verse, Come on down to verse 9. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Why is he praying that way? Here's, listen, he's, he's praying a purposeful prayer here. He says, I'm praying that your love abound with real knowledge. What does that mean? It means that when you know Jesus, you will love what Jesus loves. And the better you know Jesus, the better you'll love what Jesus loves. That's the real knowledge. The real knowledge is the more you know Jesus and His words. My friend Chuck Wood, who is one of the most effective disciple makers and church planners ever, the guy's incredible, 
for the last 34 years has done one thing every single day for 34 years. One thing. He has read at least two chapters of the Gospels. Along with his time in the Old Testament, along with his time in Psalms and Proverbs that he's focused on, every day for 34 years, you can hear him tell his testimony, every day for 34 years, he's read at least two chapters in the Gospels. Not the same two chapters. Somebody asked me that one time. Just two chapters? No, two chapters and then two chapters and two chapters. Working through the New Testament, two chapters at a time every day. And do you know what I've found? I've found that Chuck loves what Jesus loves. As he has known Jesus better and better and better and better through both New and Old Testament studies, he reflects that love toward people. The real knowledge that we're praying for is the knowledge of Jesus so that that knowledge turns into love. It turns into activity toward each other. It's beautiful. Paul is sharing it here and he's taking joy in laboring for their good. He's, he's taking joy in loving what Jesus loves and hoping that they will love also. So here's what he's praying. Look at it specifically. Verse 6, oh, excuse me, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. That means really knowing Jesus and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here's Paul. He's got joy in knowing what it costs to get this group of people called the church. This price. He has joy in praising God for them. Lord, You redeemed them. You saved them. You called them. You'll keep them. He's rejoicing. He's praying for them. But there's more. Number four. Joy is found in the ultimate perfection of the saints by the work of God. I want you to think about this for a minute. We're really screwed up. Can anybody say amen? If God took your real diary and unfolded it on the screen today, what would people leave thinking? Come on! They wouldn't leave thinking that you're really great. They would leave saying, man, that person's really messed up. Every one of us, if our diary, our thoughts, our intentions, every act, everything was unfolded, it would be a horror story. Would you go running out? I think I could get out the door. I don't know how fast I could get from here to there, but I, I could get down there pretty quick. We're messed up. I'm not saying we mess up. I'm saying we are messed up. Deep in our hearts, we are broken people. Sinners. Sinful Paul talks about it in Romans 7. says, the very thing that I wish to do, I don't do. And I end up doing the very thing that I hate. So much anguish that he says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? He knows how messed up he is deep in his heart. He knows how broken. He knows it. And what happens is this. Satan wants to get your focus on how messed up the people in the church are. That's what he's trying to do. 
He's trying to get your focus on them so that you don't have to deal with your baggage. And if he can get your focus on them and embitter your heart against them, then you don't tend to what you need to tend to and you grow distant from the people Jesus loves, the people Jesus bought, and the people Jesus is using for your good. Listen, if the people in the church irritate you and bring something out of you that's ugly, God just used them to reveal something to you. I don't like when Jesus does that to me. I don't like when He puts me in a situation with church people that makes me so upset that, I, that I'm sinful like more. I don't like that. But then what the Lord does is He says, Hey, Bart, you see that? That's exactly why I put you there. Because that thing coming out of you is not from me. And you need to tend to it. Now, what I can do in that moment is turn and look at the people who made me feel that way and start blaming them. And it'll get it off of me. Because if I'm just kind of putting them down or, or, or bashing them or gossiping about them or being bitter at them or being angry at them, then here's what's happening. What I end up doing is letting something nasty fester in my soul. But I found out that God does not leave me alone in those things. He keeps coming back at me. And so, joy is found in the ultimate perfection of the saints by the work of God. I want you to think this through. God is working out a process among our fellowship wherein we sandpaper each other's souls. And sandpaper is an abrasive. And sometimes that abrasiveness brings stuff out. And God says, do you know I'm working for your perfection? What does Paul say? He says, for I am confident of this very thing, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to perfect it. Do you realize that we're all in process of being made perfect like Jesus? And when we get there, we'll attain it. But right now, He's still working on us. And it is not any fun. <laughs> it's not. When I got ready to move here, I was living in a house that we moved into and began to remodel. A couple of words of advice. Don't ever live in the house you're remodeling. <laughs> Especially if it takes like four years. <laughs> and so we moved into this house with this thing. We're going to remodel it. And literally at night I would just I would wake up in panic of, man, there's just so much to do in this house. And so as we began talking about coming here and God began to move our hearts and unplant us from the time of ministry we loved in Natchez and plant us at the time of ministry that we love here. Uh, I knew that that house, I could, there's no way I could sell that house without it being finished. And so I was really scared and worried. And the Lord sent groups of folks from here over and, and literally Kingsville people finished that house to perfection. It was unbelievable. 
It was glorious. It was it was just a, a gift I can never repay and I can I can never praise God enough for. And so I was really upset about the condition, but God sent work and workers to bring it about. I don't know what you're seeing in the saints right now. I don't know what's bothering you about people in the church right now. But I want to tell you something. God is at work perfecting us and making us like Jesus. And He is faithful to complete it. Ultimately, He is going to perfect every one of us. I long for that day. The more that God draws me near into Him and presses me in to know Jesus, the darker I feel. And the darker I feel, the more I want the light. And the more I desire to be like Christ. He goes further. I've got to wrap this up. Here we go. Number five, joy is found in the mutual participation in and partaking of the gospel. Watch how he works this. Okay? It starts in verse five. It says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, And then he comes down and says in verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. There's something about experiences that we share that allows us to know each other better. Shared experiences. I listen to moms talk to each other about labor experiences. And it's enjoyable to hear it because you have so many diverse opinions about it. You have this one mom says, oh yeah, it's just a piece of cake. And then this other mom says, I thought I was dying. And really thought I might ought to. And you hear, and, and, but they, there's this camaraderie as this shared experience brings lady to get, ladies together. You hear men talk who've been in warfare. And who've gone and served, whether it was World War II or the Korean conflict or Vietnam or whether it was Desert Storm or S.H.I.E.L.D. or Afghanistan or whatever other things that it's been. You hear men talking, there's a camaraderie and women as well about the combat and about the situations. And you, you know that they're sharing something that's unique to them. Paul says, you are unique to each other because you've partaken of grace. And the one thing that binds every one of us together as believers is that we've experienced the grace of God and the forgiveness of our sins and the blotting out of our iniquities and the promise of hope of future in heaven with God and, and Jesus' love for us. We, we, and so that, that's the camaraderie we're, we're in today. That's why we sang these songs and read these Scriptures. That's why we're preaching this Word. It's because that is the one thing that binds our hearts truly together as partaking and participating in. But the participation is a whole other thing. This past year I was diagnosed with cancer. And all of a sudden I became a member of a group I didn't want to be in. You know, you get to join some groups you want to be in. Like, yeah, I'd like to be in that group. Invite me. I didn't want an invitation to this group. I got the invitation and it was like, oh. Then I started talking with people who were fellow experiencers of the exact same kind of cancer, exact same kind of surgery, exact same kind of diagnosis. And then I began to talk to a group outside of that were just in cancer in general. 
And then I found that folks like Angela Carpenter and her mom who have experienced what they've experienced, they are partakers of it, but now they're participating in it in a new way because what they want to do is help other people along the way. So they wrote this beautiful book from one survivor to another to another to another. It's available on Amazon. It's a tremendous book. If you know somebody who has cancer, suffering, or a diagnosis or whatever, it's very helpful about their journey and how it can encourage you. But what happens is we go from partaking to participating. What does that mean? It means this. We want people to be in our club. We do. Now, Angela's not recruiting for her club. She's not. But she's helping folks who do get in. We are recruiting for ours. And it's not a club. But we want folks to be fellow partakers. Well, how do we do that? We participate in the mission of the church. Some of it's through child care and some of it's through um, direct evangelism. And some of it's through cooking and some of it's through cleaning and some of it's through teaching. And some, you just go on and on and on and on. Okay, I, 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 I've got to move forward. I'm going to talk more about this. We've got plenty of weeks to flesh all this out. Number six. Joy is found in the passion Jesus gives us for the saints. This was one of the great things that I learned from Paul. Look in Paul's writing in verse 7. He says, for it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. Do you you have the saints in your heart? Look around. Do you have these folks? Do you have the global church in your heart? Do you have the local church in your heart? If not, something's wrong. Paul said, when you have the fruit of righteousness of Jesus' joy welling up in you from abiding in Him, you will have in your heart what's in Jesus' heart. The saints. You'll love one another. And so he fleshes it out. He says, I have you in my heart. And then in verse 8 he says, For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus. Whose affection? Jesus' affection. It's Jesus' affection and Paul makes him love the saints and all of their brokenness and all of their weakness and all of their sinfulness and all of their wretchedness. It's Jesus that gives us that love. And so there's joy in the passion that Jesus gives us for the saints. So, as we abide in Jesus, which is your responsibility every day to break open God's Word, to read it, to abide in it, to come into your heart from the Word and to rest in Jesus and know Him. As you do that, this is going to grow in you, this joy about the price He's paid, this joy that will make you praise God for the saints, this joy that will have you praying even for the folks that, that, that make you wrestle with your own churchness. The joy of knowing God's going to perfect us all. The joy and the participation because we are partakers of grace. And the joy that is passion for each other, real love and care and affection for each other, no matter what happens among us. If Jesus is doing that, you're going to want to express it. So today, I'm going to give you an assignment. Every bulletin had a thank you card in it. Every one. We bought a thousand thank you cards, a little over a thousand, and so there's more out in in the lobby. It's thank you cards. You need to let somebody know that they matter. You need to, today, express to them a thank you. 
Take time. Maybe it's somebody who's been keeping your kids and you've just really not stopped to say, you know, you've allowed me to worship by always taking care of my babies. Maybe it's a person who led you to the Lord and that was a long time ago and they're still alive and you could send them a card. Maybe it's somebody that encouraged you in a dark time or sat beside you in a moment of travail or sorrow or grief or anguish or even anger. Maybe it's somebody that you hurt and you just need to say, I'm sorry. Everybody's got one in the bulletin. There's more out there. I want to use every one of them. There's no reason that there's not a thousand thanks flowing out of us today for the saints of God. To say thank you. To let them know. Nice handwritten sweet note. To let them know. I love you. Thank you. God wants us to rejoice in each other. And it's possible that you're here today and even though God has forgiven you of your sins, there's somebody in this church, either present or absent, or somebody out of this church that's in another church, present or absent there, and you've not forgiven them. And you can't take joy the way you ought to take joy because you don't mind letting God forgive you. Yeah, baby, bring it on, Jesus. Pour the blood on. But you don't want to let them go and forgive them. So you're holding it over them. You withdraw yourself from them. You're not going to hug their neck, shake their hand. You're not going to interact with them. You're going to turn your shoulder. You're going to stay away from them. You just carry out your own little bitter party there. But you'll run to Jesus and say, oh, please, forgive me. And so I... I think we need to give to each other exactly what Jesus has given us. Love, forgiveness, and affection. In that way, we will take joy in the church. Would you pray with me? I want to begin in my prayer for those of you who are here today who are not Christians. What I want to talk to you about is how to have this joy. You see, Jesus loves you. His love for you is eternal. His love for you is infinite. And it doesn't matter what you've done because His love is capable of forgiving that. His grace is capable of erasing it, washing it, cleansing it, removing it, restoring it. And what He wants to do with you today is give you reason to know that you're loved. And I've found the best lovers are those that know they're loved by God. That was Paul. He knew God loved him. He knew Jesus loved And he gave that love to others. I want you to receive that love. You say, Pastor Bart, how do I go about that? Well, you have to admit, you're not very lovable. That's called sin. You have offended God in such a way that the only way... He can let you enjoy His love and His forgiveness is by the slaying, the killing, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for your sins. And that's already taken place. And He was raised from the dead because sufficient payment for your sins was made. And so He's offering that to you as a free gift. If you would give your life to Him and trust Him and follow Him, He would wash away all your sins and you can follow Him today. Pray with me, even now. Dear God, don't feel very lovable. 
I know that I've sinned. But I've heard this good word that Jesus died for my sins. That He was raised from the dead. And so I trust that. I believe it. Please forgive me. Wash me today in Jesus' name. Now, believer, I want to talk to you for just a second as we close. Have you settled the things that are keeping you from loving God's people? Is there anything residing in your heart today that is stealing your joy? I want to ask you, forgive. Forgive. Restore. Enjoy this wonderful thing called the church. A people purchased with the blood of Jesus. Would you stand?